Good morning, church. I would like to invite you to open your Bible to the New Testament, to the letter of 1 Corinthians. Thank you, Pastor Doug and Hannah, for leading us so well. 1 Corinthians. Today we're going to talk about wisdom. That's why I asked Gabe to read from the one book in the entire Bible devoted to it, probably more famously than any other Proverbs, to have an Old Testament reading for what we're going to be looking at. This morning, in light of Thanksgiving weekend, I have chosen to speak on being thankful for the wisdom of God, which is a key theme in the Bible, and because it is such a significant thing in our lives. The Bible talks a lot about wisdom, and it says wisdom is absolutely critical, biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, for finding joy, for example, real joy, for thriving in relationships, for enjoying life, and for finishing well. And the passage we're looking at is not found in Proverbs. It's found in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, and we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, a section in which Paul is talking about how to find true wisdom. What's the source? Obviously, there's lots of voices in history and in our culture saying, believe this, believe that, do this, do that. And which one we follow will take us in very different places. And so Paul wants us to know where the source of true wisdom is. And his theme is very simple. If we're basing our life on the right kind of wisdom, it will take us in very good places and ultimately to eternal life. And if we're basing our life on the wrong kind of wisdom, it will take us in very dark places and will ultimately lead to our destruction. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 to 16 we're going to see two very simple points about wisdom. The word binary is a big word these days. Well, Paul is very binary in his thinking. There's a place to not look for wisdom, and there's a place to look for wisdom. And that's what the sermon is about. So first of all, in verses 6 through 8, we're not to look for the kind of wisdom that we don't want. Theme in 1 Corinthians is the church's fascination with wisdom. This is a book written in what is today or a letter written to it, which is today, uh, Greece, small church, less than four or five years old. And this was a culture where this church was in southern, what is today southern Greece, that was obsessed with human wisdom. And that cultural nuance had been leaking into the church. And most of us know the background of Greek philosophy to some degree. We know a couple of the big names, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, Plato. This was a church that was enamored, obsessed with human wisdom much like the surrounding culture around it. That's always the great danger of the church, is when the culture leaks into the church significantly, and that was taking place in this church. And so their problem that Paul is addressing here, understand, was that this church had an unhealthy reverence for human wisdom. There's nothing wrong with human wisdom. It's just a matter of where you place it in the priority list. And they were placing it above God's wisdom. So he, right out of the chute, tells them where not to look for wisdom, verses 6 through verse 8. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Always a good reminder as we look at the news, look at those who are the power brokers in any given age. Ultimately, God will bring them to nothing if they do not know him. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden 
and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. Fair to say, they still don't. And if they had, interestingly, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. All right, a little bit of background. Again, this is a church in what is today southern Greece. Paul is writing to them. We have more of Paul's words to this church than to any other church he wrote to in the letters 1 and 2 Corinthians. And so he's writing to them because of their obsession with Greek philosophy, human philosophy. Some of you may know the word philosophy comes from two Greek words, phileo, love, wisdom, love of human wisdom. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Sophos is wisdom. Nothing wrong with the love of wisdom. It's a good pursuit. It's a matter of where we put the priority. Human wisdom, God's wisdom, or do we flip it around and put human wisdom on top? That's the issue. And the problem here is that the Greeks assume that the human mind was capable of finding true wisdom all by itself. That's the deadly assumption here. And this led to human pride. It led to worldly wisdom. It was tearing this church apart. And it was something that was deeply affecting these newer believers, which is why Paul starts out the letter the way he does. If you back up just a few verses to chapter 1 and look at verses 20 and 21... In fact, these are a couple of the most famous verses, I think, in the entire letter. Paul, right out of the chute, hits them head on. Where is the wise person? Chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise person? Paul writes. Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? So again, he's writing to people that are obsessed with human philosophers. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The foolishness of preaching. Now go back to verse 8 for a minute in chapter 2. Notice something very interesting. Paul tells us that the crucifixion is actually proof. This is interesting. The crucifixion is actually proof that the rulers of the age did not understand the wisdom of God. Because if they had, they would not have crucified Jesus. Because it had the exact opposite effect of what they had anticipated. So you get to verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would have not crucified. And then notice the phrase. The Lord of glory. There's a few verses in the New Testament that rise to the surface of those that exalt and shout out that Jesus is God. This is one of the clearest. And so maybe perhaps the next time a Jehovah's Witness or a cult member comes to your door and has a Bible and wants to talk about who is Jesus, there's a great verse to take him to. You say, uh, by the way, who was it that was crucified on the cross? And right here you have in verse 8, they crucified not just a prophet, not just a man, not just a philosopher. They crucified the Lord of glory. One of the strongest affirmations of the deity of Christ anywhere in the Christian scriptures. Now, Paul's warning about false wisdom is very similar to other warnings given in the Scriptures. I want to turn to one other passage that almost sounds identical, and that is the book of James. So if you turn to the back of your New Testament, all the way back to the letter of James, chapter 3, James has a paragraph that sounds very similar to Paul, and there's a reason for that, and that is because both James and Paul are dipping back into the Hebrew Scripture tradition of wisdom. And there's a very strong tradition of wisdom in the Old Testament. Books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. These are called the wisdom books. 
And Jesus and Paul and James and the New Testament writers would dip into that well because it was so treasured and it was so esteemed. And so James is dipping into that same wisdom tradition. Chapter 3, verses 13 through verse 16. I'm going to read it. And then James is going to list for us three characteristics of false wisdom, of worldly wisdom. These are worth gold. Three characteristics of worldly wisdom. So chapter 3, James, verses 13 to 16. And he'll sound, again, a lot like Paul. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. James lists at least three characteristics of worldly wisdom. These are worth highlighting. Number one, worldly wisdom ultimately comes from the pit. (laughs) It ultimately comes from hell. And he tells us that in verse 15. Very clearly, such wisdom, he's speaking mockingly here, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual. And then James adds, it's it's demonic. That gives us the idea where this stuff comes from. The wisdom of the world keeps us separated from God. It's demonic, and it ultimately comes from the pit of hell. In Genesis 3, where this kind of wisdom we see for the first time on display, the serpent comes up to Eve and whispers in her ear, you can't trust God. That's his argument. Did God really say he put doubt in her mind what God had said? And the serpent's been doing the same thing throughout history, and so do his demons. Whispering in the believer's ear, God isn't good. You can't really trust him. Look at the way your life's turning out. Do you think he loves you? Try something else. Go on another tangent. Read somebody else. Pick a book off Oprah's list. The great prophetess of our age. But don't trust the word of God. And that's why this kind of wisdom ultimately comes from hell. A number of years ago, I met with a professing young believer, young woman. She was uh, late 20s, early 30s. She was convinced her prospects for marriage were fast ending. And an unbeliever proposed to her and she accepted it. So we were sitting in my office. She hadn't gotten married yet. And I was talking to her and I laid out, because she was a member of our church, and I said, what you're doing is against what God has said. And she made a haunting statement to me. She said, look it, this is my age, I want to get married, I know what I'm choosing to do is out of the will of God, but I'm doing it anyway. It's a tragedy when a pastor hears something like that. And there was nothing I could do to talk her out of it. She was convinced, I'm going to try another wisdom path because I don't really believe that God's way is the best for me anymore. So the first characteristic of worldly wisdom is where it comes from. Secondly, what it's motivated by. Verse 16. First part of verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition. So its origin, it comes from hell, ultimately. And secondly, James tells us what worldly wisdom is motivated by, selfish ambition. See, the first question. Young people hear this. First question of worldly wisdom is this. What do I want? That's the first question of worldly wisdom. 
How can I bring myself the most pleasure in life? This is exactly what Sigmund Freud did. The famous Austrian psychiatrist, Freud had a philosophy of life he called the pleasure principle. A lot of people have adopted it, obviously, over the decades. And it was based on selfish ambition, much of it pursuing sexual pleasure. He had come to believe that permanent happiness could only be found if I abandon all else and pursue pleasure. In 1930, nine years before Freud died, he published a book called Civilization and Its Discontents. Here's where his pleasure experiment was taking him nine years before he died. Quote, what good is a long life if it is difficult and barren of joys and if it is so full of misery that we can only welcome death as a deliverer? Close quote. And some of you know that Freud ended up committing suicide, having his personal physician administer a lethal dose of morphine to him. That's where it ends up, motivated by selfish ambition. Thirdly, James tells us, verse 16, the results of worldly wisdom. So he tells us where it comes from, comes from hell. He tells us what is motivated by selfish ambition. And then thirdly, he tells us where it leads to. And he tells us it leads to evil and disorder. And that's the second part of verse 16. So I'm going to start with verse 16 in the beginning. For where you have evil and selfish ambition, now, what's the result? There you will find disorder and every evil practice. Kids, hello, good morning, happy Thanksgiving. Young people, listen, the ironic thing about, I, want, I really want you to hear this part. The ironic thing about the worldly wisdom around us is this. It promises freedom. It promises happiness. It promises liberation. And it leads to chaos. And it leads to misery. And it destroys lives. Christian leaders see this all the time. All you need to do is look at history to see how destructive worldly wisdom really is. Whether it's Freud, or you look at someone like a Marilyn Monroe, or a Michael Jackson, or Madonna, or Lady Gaga or Dylan Mulvaney, doesn't matter. You look at where worldly wisdom leads, that's where it leads. When we turn from the wisdom of God and we look towards the wisdom of the world, ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, the results will always be tragic. Always. Always. You don't have to read a whole lot of history to come to that conclusion. One of my favorite authors, Paul Johnson, I quote him every so often, and I bring up, I think, his best book every so often, because it's such a good resource. The title of the book, one word, Intellectuals. Paul Johnson was a British historian who documented in that book how destructive worldly wisdom is, unlike any other book I've ever seen. He wrote in the preface, quote, this book is an examination. Listen to what the purpose of the book is from this gifted historian. This book is an examination of the moral credentials of certain leading intellectuals who have attempted to give advice to humanity on how to conduct its affairs. Right? That's, that's what he set out to do. Paul Johnson was a gifted historian. He wrote a plethora of books. But in this particular book, this is an examination of the moral credentials of leading intellectuals. He went back about two to three hundred years who've attempted to give advice to humanity on how to conduct its affairs. And so what he does is he wrote a whole series of short biographies in this book, looking at some of the key intellectual leaders over the last two to three hundred years 
who claimed to be superior moral guides for humanity. These were the men and women, were, he has both in his book, who basically presented themselves as, I have figured out life. Here is what it's all about. And so he takes us on a tour of these individuals, ironically, who most of them shipwrecked their own lives. People like Rousseau or Karl Marx. The chapter of Marx is fascinating. Or Leo Tolstoy. What a moral disaster to look at his life. Tragically gifted writer. Or Hemingway or Bertrand Russell or Jean-Paul Sartre or Bertolt Brecht or Percy Shelley, whose second wife, Mary Shelley, wrote Frankenstein. And he takes you on a tour of these different lives to say, look, at these are the people that announce themselves as secular prophets saying, follow this path. And he shows that when they did, what happened to each of them? And they imploded. They hit the wall. They crashed and they went over the cliff. And the point of the book is that worldly wisdom promises so much and delivers so little and leaves people feeling helpless and hopeless and often suicidal. Look at pastorally, as I was working on this, what came to mind, I think pretty much as an illustration of this today, better than almost anything, is the example right now in our culture, not just our culture, Western culture, pretty much, of the accelerated depression rates and attempted suicide rates of young people in the LGBTQ movement. Precious young people who are looking for love and acceptance, which are really good things to be looking for, but ignoring God's wisdom, and they're being lied to by their culture. One of the most blatant deceptions of our day, young people, hear this, one of the most blatant deceptions of our day is the deception that gender is not assigned by God, but is something we choose. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You might as well call it that. It's the lie that divides sex and gender. That sex is some kind of a physical thing we have at birth, but we're the ones who pick our own gender because it's open and it's fluid. And so young people are lied to by politicians and by the press and by the cultural leaders of the day and the celebrity superstars who all push this agenda and it promises so much and it blatantly ignores what God has said in the book of Genesis and pretty much everywhere else. Back to that word binary. God's extremely binary. In Genesis, there are two genders, male and female, and God says that's all there is. And it's not something we choose through hormones and surgery. It is something God assigns from the moment of conception. And the tragedy is when we attempt to circumvent God's wisdom, where does it go? And every time it goes to the same place, sorrow, confusion, depression, and despair. I think the verse that came to my mind more this week working on this sermon was Jesus' words in John chapter 8 when he said this, if you will abide in my word, you truly are my disciples. You will know the truth. And what's the rest of it? And the truth will set you free. You can't get much more to the point than that. And that is why the LGBTQ agenda takes precious people and then just lies to them and never delivers and then abandons them in despair and depression. That brings us to where to find true wisdom, verses 9 to 16. Back to 2 Corinthians, I mean 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
where to find God's wisdom, verses 9 to 16. Paul now turns to the source of true wisdom and tells us that what we can't find on our own, God has revealed to us. And so the question is, who are we going to listen to? It's that simple. Verses 12 and verse 13. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom. It's a direct shot at Plato and Aristotle. But in words taught by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual reality with Spirit-taught words. Friends, Paul's teaching is very clear. True wisdom can only be found in one place. And it's the word. The Bible puts a huge emphasis on words. Not impressions. Not vague ideas, words that God has communicated in language that we can understand. 2 Timothy 3.16, some of you know it. All scripture is inspired by God. Interestingly, that word inspired, translated inspired in the original Greek, is a word that's only used one time in the New Testament. We don't know if Paul made it up or took a couple words and put them together, but it's two words basically put together, God's breath. That's the word. And that's what Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is affirming. All Scripture, everything in Scripture, is the very breath of God. That's his whole point. Same thing Jesus said in John 17. Your word, Lord, is truth. And that is why Jesus used the word of God when he went against Satan in the Judean desert in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. When Satan came after Jesus in the Judean desert, Becky and I were in the Judean desert earlier this year. It is a hostile, barren place, if you've ever been in the Judean desert. And that is where Satan came at Jesus, and Jesus pulled out his weapons. What did he pull out? Kids, what did he pull out? Did he pull out a slingshot? No. Did he pull out a sword? No. Did he pull out a gun? No. Did he pull out a boomerang? No. He pulled out the word of God. And you know where he went? Deuteronomy. In fact, if you look at the quotes of Jesus, you will find him defaulting to a couple books regularly. Isaiah, Psalms, and Deuteronomy. He loved those books. And three, four times he hurls scripture back at the devil. That is how we combat worldly wisdom. That brings us to verse 14, which a lot of people misunderstand. I want to read it and then clarify it. Verse 14 The person without the Spirit, so we're talking about the unbeliever or the religious non-Christian. It may be you here this morning. We have every week people who are religious, who are spiritual but aren't yet in the kingdom. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness. The original Greek word there, by the way, is moria, which means we get our word moron from it. So... The unbelieving person looks at the things of God and says, this turns you into a moron. It's exactly how they view the Bible. This stuff turns you into a moron. I'm going to follow my own path. And cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. Now, let me tell you, let me show you how this verse, and I I remember as a teenager being told this, how this verse is typically read in the average Bible-believing church. It's typically read, the unsaved person cannot understand what the Bible says. Cognitively. And yet, as I became a philosophy major and then married in comparative religion and went to seminary, I read a lot of non-Christian scholars 
probably too many for my own good over the years. And some of them were non-Christian. Some of them were atheists and agnostics who were New and Old Testament scholars who did a remarkable job explaining exactly what Scripture said. And I would read them and think, well, now I was told that verse 14 says they can't understand, but then I go and I read a Rudolf Bultmann or a Bart Ehrman or an Albert Schweitzer, and they're doing a remarkable job saying, no, here's what the text says. There's a God. He sent his son. And the son came to die on a cross to reconcile. I'm thinking, I thought it said they can't understand it until I look closer at the verse. And the key verb here is the verb dekomai. Say, what's that? The unsaved person cannot accept the things of God. It's not necessarily they can't cognitively grasp them. It's they don't welcome the teachings of God. So if you have an atheist New Testament scholar, and there are a number of them around the world, you might say, why would a New Testament scholar be an atheist? Well, they like Greek and they like Greco-Roman culture and they're brilliant. So they like to, but they don't believe in God. So when an atheist scholar gets done dissecting a paragraph of Scripture and a Christian scholar gets done dissecting that same paragraph of Scripture, what's the difference? And the difference is this. The atheist, who may explain it brilliantly, language, cultural background, philology, when it gets all done, he says, I think it's a bunch of bunk. That's a Hebrew word for baloney. Okay? I don't believe this stuff. And if you interviewed him, said, do you believe that's true? Of course not. It's a modern age. We're a modern man and woman. We don't believe this. But the believing scholar gets done dissecting that paragraph and says, this is the word of God, and I want to obey it. That's what this verse is saying. The person without the spirit, they can comprehend intellectually, but they don't welcome the teachings. Why? Because that's a divine gift from God. It's mercy when God opens blinded eyes and softens a hard heart. That's what that verse is talking about here. All right. What's our big lesson from today? And then we'll come to our summons. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, please hear this. Here is the lesson coming from Paul's directive today. The lesson is about choices. That's what this is about. Every week, we make a series of choices. You made a series of choices this morning. You made a whole series of choices this last week. And you will make a whole another set of choices this coming week if God gives you the breath to do it. And as we make those choices, the question is this. Am I going to make them based on what God has said, or am I going to make those choices based on worldly wisdom? Choices like what? Well, choices like who to believe in life. Every week, you're making decisions about who to listen to and who not to listen to. What to eat, what to drink, whether to forgive, how we treat people that mistreat us, what to do about truth, how to use our cell phone, how to use our television, how to use our computer, what to watch, what not to watch, how to use our money, who to trust. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We're making choices all the time. And the big question is, are the choices we're making, which are defining us, by the way, one decision at a time. They are shaping our character and who we are one decision at a time. Are those choices based on the word of God or are they based on worldly wisdom? And just because I'm a preacher and I traffic in clarity, I hope, let me just be really clear where the two versions go. The wisdom of the world 
leads to self-destructive habits. It leads to deception. It leads to foolish patterns in life and to misery and to bondage. And again, you don't have to read a lot of history to see that. And the wisdom of God, where does it lead? To joy, to emotional healing, to freedom, and it delivers us from spiritual depression. That is the difference on the two roads. For our summons this morning, I'm going to do something just a little bit different. I want to ask if you would turn to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Why would I ask you to turn to Matthew for the words of Jesus on this sermon for a summons? And here's the reason. Because in this paragraph, which is one of Jesus' most famous paragraphs, he is dipping into the tradition of wisdom, and he is contrasting how a wise person builds and how a foolish person builds their life. And as I looked at this this week, I thought this is a marvelous summons to what Paul was writing about, what James is writing about, and the whole wisdom tradition. So I'm going to pose a question, then I'm going to read Jesus' words about how the wise and the foolish build, and then I'm going to repose the question and give you the answer. How's that? How many times your teacher just give you the answer? I'm going to give you the answer. So here's the question. Before I read this, here's the question. Kids, here's the question. According to what Jesus is going to say, what is it that separates the wise man from the foolish man? Now I'm going to read it. I'm going to pose it again. I'll give you the answer. Therefore, Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27, the words of Jesus. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I'm not going to sing the great little song we learned in Sunday school about this. I will spare you. A man's got to know his limitations. The rain came down. The streams rose. The winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundation on the rock. Probably a play on words there. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Rain came down, streams rose, winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Okay, what's the question? Again, what is it that separates the wise man from the foolish man and how they built? And the answer is this. Whether or not they were listening and obeying the words of Jesus. That's the distinction. Whether or not they were obeying, the, and again, not just vague impressions, the actual words of Jesus. John Piper has a book, What Jesus Demands of the World. He wrote several years ago, and it lays out the commands of Jesus marvelously for a believer. Jesus gave a lot of commands. A lot of it's based on the Torah and the teaching of law, but the point is, Jesus says, the one who does my words is the wise person who's building on a rock. And the one who does not obey my words is the foolish person who builds their house on the sand. The one repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and is saved. They read the book, they're in the book, and they're asking, how can I obey this? Whereas the foolish person may hear it, may sit in church and listen to sermons, but walks out and just says, oh hum, I'm not going to follow that. So I close again with the words of Jesus. Again, the verse I think that came to mind more than any other this week. John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus said, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
That is what is worth giving thanks for on Thanksgiving weekend. Father, thank you for the wisdom tradition in the scriptures, for Solomon, and even the example of Solomon, who did the same thing Freud did. He went on a pleasure experiment, but they ended in such different spots. Father, thank you for the wisdom of God. Thank you for not abandoning us to our own foolishness. We're so finite, we're so myopic, and we're so foolish. Father, we end up in dark places when we don't listen to you. Some here this morning are not listening to you. Some are, many are, but some are not. May you give grace, may you give mercy in open blinded eyes here today. Or for a genuine believer who's off on their own course and it's starting to reap destruction in their life, Father, in mercy, give them the gift of repentance. We pray all of this in the mighty deliverer name, Jesus. Amen.